6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapters 3 through 4, verses 1 through 12. Well, we're going to explore, we're in the middle of exploring, the epistles to the Thessalonians. And whenever we go into the Word of God, we always want to do that with prayer. So let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you, Father, for these specific epistles, the eschatological epistles. We thank you, Father, for what they hold for us. We pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit, you would open these epistles to our understanding and open our lives to your Word, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of our coming King in whose name we do pray. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King. Amen. Okay, we're in the epistles of the Thessalonians. And we are going to undertake tonight 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and a few extra verses, and I'll explain that as we go. But I want to start by pointing out something. The Thessalonian epistles are probably the most important epistles in the New Testament having to do with eschatology, study of the last things. It's amazing that these epistles are among the first that Paul wrote. And uh, that, I think, is very interesting. The great themes of the two Thessalonian epistles are as follows. The first epistle is the one that is our primary reference, not the only, but the primary reference, on the harpazo commonly called the rapture. The rapture term really comes from the Latin rather than from the Greek, but the point is, the Greek term is harpazo, the rapture of the church. Arguably the most preposterous doctrine in Christianity, but we'll be looking at that very carefully in the next session. I'll explain why in a minute. But the second epistle will deal with the kingdom on the earth and the second coming of Christ. Don't confuse the second coming with the rapture. They're two distinct things, and these epistles will clarify much of the confusion that surrounds these issues. Now, there is a danger, widespread, of marginalizing eschatology. Many pastors won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. They use a variety of excuses. One of the reasons it's so challenging is that it really requires you to have your arms around the whole plan of God. It's not just a little segment of time or a few key verses. It's the whole plan of God that's at issue here. But there, and there's a danger in marginalizing eschatology. Is it extraneous or is it vital? There are many, even people who study eschatology, sort of have the view, well, that, that's peripheral theology. I remember Walter Martin, who's one of my mentors, fabulous human being, fabulous authority. But he also tended to regard eschatology, what he called peripheral theology. That, unfortunately, was his viewpoint, and I think, he, in a certain sense, he suffered for that. It is vital. If es- eschatology is the blessed hope, it should be at the very center of our priorities, and we're going to deal with that. Now, you should understand that eschatology has been marginalized by its enthusiasts as well as its detractors. 
And obviously it's had detractors. There are people that deliberately argue against studying prophecy or studying eschatology and whatever, and they have their reasons. But eschatology is injured probably even more by its enthusiasts. People who get so into it, they get into preposterous conjectures. They go beyond what the text reveals. In fact, they go against what the text reveals. And there's a tendency to get sensationalistic. There is a path between these two extremes, and that's the one that we see. To understand it, and to understand it in terms of what it should, the fruit it should bear in our personal lives. That turns out, strangely enough, to be the key to the whole thing. And the theme of this chapter we're going to deal with here is that the coming of Christ is a purifying hope. Those that have their eyes set on Christ's return tend to live more pure lives. It's people who treat that casually that tend to treat their holiness casually. Eschatology will change your life. It will affect your lifestyle. If you hold to the hope of the imminent coming of Christ for his own. The concept of imminence is also controversial among many theologians. But we, we feel clearly the New Testament teaches us as Christians to expect him at any moment. That doesn't mean we set dates. We don't think he's going to come from, we, uh, get, get here a week from Tuesday or something. No, 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 no. But we don't try to set dates, but we live our lives in anticipation of his surprise uh, return. He's catching us up. We're getting into all of that. If that's really part of your life, you will walk differently than if it's not part of your life. And that's the critical part of the eschatology. How does it affect your life? If that doesn't affect your life, you don't really believe it. It's just sort of a theory or a philosophy with you. And that's, very, that's a danger we should all be guarding against. It's not just an intellectual thing. It should be a heart thing, a commitment thing, and so forth. Now, this theme will become the very heart of the epistle, and we'll be dealing it from chapter 3 through the 12th verse of the next chapter. We're going to pick up 12 verses of the next chapter in order to leave a full session next time for the rest of chapter 4, which deals specifically with the harpazo. So we're going to fudge a little bit here and not take just chapter 3. We're going to pick up 12 verses of the next one to really set the stage for what's coming. So 1 Thessalonians, just to refresh a little bit, it's regarded as the earliest book of the New Testament by many scholars. And it's amazing because it gives us an insight into what Paul taught his new believers in the first month of their Christian walk. He was only there a month. And now he's writing letters to remind them what he taught them while he was there. And so it's amazing the topics that that includes. The rapture, the antichrist, all kinds of things uh, in the first three weeks of faith. It's interesting that in these epistles, Every chapter refers to the second coming. Wow. The first three chapters are, very, are personal. The last two chapters are very practical. Practical? Yes, indeed. Now, the purpose of this letter is to, the writer's joy at their steadfast. He, Paul's gotten, uh, Timothy and Silas came from Thessalonica. Paul, meanwhile, has gotten down to Corinth. They come and give him a report on how things are going. And on the one hand, there's some things that need dealing with, but he's has great joy at their steadfastness. They're faithful. They're following the word. He also is writing to refute certain false charges and slanderous insinuations that are being circulated. So no surprise, I don't know of any Bible teacher that doesn't have somebody circulating gossip about him. Response to personal attacks, assailed motives, self-seeking, cowardice. He's going to deal with all of that in the letter. But he also is going to deal with concern over the loved ones who have passed on. 
we'll discover that some of the believers in Thessalonica are upset because some of their friends that were Christians had died. And they sort of confused by that. That's where Paul really clarifies for them what the harpazo is all about. And we'll get to that shortly. So chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians was all about salvation. Chapter 2 was all about service. Chapter 3 will be about sanctification. I tried to have it seminary qualified. See, they all start with S. And so if you do alliteration, uh, then it must be true. So I want you to notice this must be, you know, seminary qualified here. And I'm, of course, being facetious, but let's move on here. Let's first of all just read through this chapter where we're going here, chapter 3, uh, 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day praying exceedingly, that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And so that's the text for chapter 3. We'll take a few, little more of chapter 4 as we get through this here. Well, if the unbelieving Jews were so relentless in their antagonism to the gospel as to hound missionaries all the way to Berea, what might they be doing uh, to their followers at home? See, Paul was anxious, sort of like a parent with his kids at boot camp. Uh, they were his crown of rejoicing. He was concerned over their progress, and that's what he's rejoicing here. Now, he speaks of five crowns elsewhere in the scripture. There's the crown of righteousness. There's a crown of glory in 1 Peter 5. There's a crown of life in Revelation 2, an incorruptible crown, and a crown of rejoicing. These are five crowns. Are they different crowns? I don't know. These might be different labels for a crown. Or there might be 20, and here's five listed. I don't happen to see that there's just five, but there are distinctively five references in the Scripture to crowns that are rewarded for the overcomer. Crown of righteousness, crown of glory, crown of life, incorruptible crown, whatever, and crown of... I think they're all incorruptible. So one could argue that these are just labels for a crown. Others say, think there's five distinctive ones. If there's five, there might be seven or there might be 20. We don't know. These are ones that happen to be specifically referred to in the scripture. And they're not diadems like a crown a king wears. They're stephanos. This is a term in Greek for a festive garland earned in an athletic contest. It's like king for a day kind of thing. It's like an athletic award. At that day, at his appearing, there is, is what they're talking about here. 
You know, there's an expression that in a funeral to be, he's gone to his reward. That's not a biblical term, by the way, as an aside. Those rewards are granted at the, the judgment seat, and that's 2 Corinthians 5.10. But let's move on here. Let's just jump right in here. 1 Thessalonians 1, wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. Now, the word wherefore is an important word. This ties this chapter back in with what uh, Paul had talked about in the previous chapter. Remember, in the last chapter, he spoke of the family relationships that exist in the church. In the sense that he had been a mother to the church, giving birth to it, so to speak. He was a father to them. He was also a brother. He uses those three terms, you may recall, in the previous session. And so the, the word wherefore is to tie this chapter. It's a continuation of what we picked up in chapter 2. The word wherefore is the linkage, if you will, the bridge, if you will. He thought it, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. See, Timothy was delegated to go back to Thessalonica. Paul is indicating it wasn't easy to stay in Athens alone, but he, he felt that he had to, and he delegated Timothy to go back. See, Athens was the intellectual capital of the world, but it had a very deeply pagan challenge. Intellectual curiosity coupled with moral indifference. That's a very dangerous thing. Intellectual curiosity coupled with moral indifference. And therefore, obviously, it was hopelessly estranged from God. And that's what Paul is dealing with on Mars Hill and all of that. But he stays at Athens, sends Timothy back. And I sent Timothy as a brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. A minister. Now, the word there is actually deacon. The word deacon really means a table waiter. Deacon is a server. He's not an overseer. He's a server is the, what the word really means. And that's the term he's using here with Timotheus. To establish you. This is a strange term. It means to strengthen, fix, make firm, or solid. It obviously is the same term. It speaks of Paul's labors. We go all through those again if we wanted to. And to comfort you concerning your faith. The word comfort here means to call to the side of. Uh, from come with and for its strength. To, to, it's really a, here it's used in the sense of encouragement. Encouragement. But there's a term, the term establish, uh, it comes from Exodus 17, verse 12. Remember, Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until they're going down. They discovered that when his hands were up, the battle would go well. When his hands went down, they were losing. So they wanted to hold up his hands. He's getting tired. He can't hold them that long. So Aaron and Hur both hold his hands up, And uh, that's a famous event there in Exodus 12. The term stayed up is the same word as establish. See, Paul sent Timothy over to them to stay them up, to hold them up, to establish them. Same word happens to be involved here. Get the establish you. And people need the same thing today. I could tell you there are certain people that hold my arms up. A lot of people wish us well and encourage us and pray for us and we value that. But there are some that really come alongside, and, and uh, I get a call probably several times a week from one of our board members who specifically is there to hold my arms up, and that, that word really fits. Anyone in the ministry needs that today. They need that inner circle that are there encouraging, being a Barnabas, if you will. Get to verse 3, that no man should be moved by these afflictions for yourselves. Know that we are appointed there too. If you're in the faith, you're going to have afflictions. Why? For lots of recent reasons. There's a list of 10 different reasons in, the book of, in our study in the book of Romans. But one of those is to test your faith, to put your faith to the test. How do you measure a sailor? In storms, not in fair weather, right? 
How do you judge a pilot by a real forced landing? If you're a pilot, you don't know what kind of pilot you are until you have, not a practice, a real forced landing. It shows you what you're made of. The Japanese Navy during World War II, when the weather was nice, they gave their people leave. When a storm was coming, they went do and they did, all, they did all their practices in the stormy weather. We did just the opposite, right? Finally, as we picked up on that, all we had to know is where the storms were and we knew where their fleet was. They used the weather as, as an ally. Some things we only learn the hard way is part of what I think God is telling us here. One of the prayers you should have if you're in afflictions, pray that the lessons not be wasted. You know, one, you'd like to say, feel that once is enough, huh? Suffering was appointed. See, appointed there too. Suffering has appointed you. There's a reason God is allowing that. It's to teach you something. It's one of several possibilities, not the only one. It has a beneficial purpose in some way you can count on that. I have to tell you frankly, there are very few mistakes I've missed. I think I've tried them all. Okay. By the way, the devil is often to be more feared when he fawns than when he roars. For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. We're not talking about the great tribulation. That's a specific term for a specific event that is yet future. Capital G, capital T, the great tribulation. There's a lot of scripture on that particular period and its events. He's using the term here in a more universal sense, that we should suffer tribulation. We all do. Don't confuse that with the eschatological uh, tribulation. So we, were with you. we told you before that we should suffer tribulation. Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation. He promises that. Suffer tribulation. What do you mean by tribulation? To oppress, distress, trouble, afflict by application from without. In the world ye shall have tribulation. John 16, 33. Count on it. Jesus promised it to you. You know, I'm always amused by these people who give a testimony at some luncheon. When I accepted Christ, boy, my, everything went grub. My business prospered, and I'm happy, and all these wonderful things happened. That's the formula that, that certain groups require you to give you. If you're going to give your testimony, you never mention sin specifically, and you always tell how all the benefits of being in Christ. There's a guy, a friend of Chuck's that used to, when the full gospel people wanted a testimony, he'd always give him this particular guy, because he'd get up there and say how he had this wonderful business, and went well until I accepted Christ, and I lost it all. It wasn't what they wanted to hear, but it had a very, very important lesson, basically what we're having here. Now understand, we're not talking about the Great Tribulation. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 will deal with that when we get to it. But see, another purpose of the afflictions or tribulations is to test the genuineness of our belief. Putting shoe leather to your convictions. And if we suffer with Christ, we shall also reign with Him is the promise, but it has a condition. If we suffer with Christ, we shall also reign with Him. If you look carefully, these promises about reigning with Him have a condition on them, and that we're participants, not spectators. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, Paul speaking, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. There's lots of repetition here, and that just shows you that Paul was so stirred as he wrote. He's speaking from his heart. He's not wordsmithing this thing. There's a time break. Timothy's returned. Paul had moved to Corinth, worked at his trade, and he preached at the synagogue. So there's some at least weeks, maybe more, that from the time that Paul was there that he's writing this letter. This is all in Acts 18. But we have this term tempter. Lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. 
Is Satan moving around here? How many believe he's a real person? Okay, good for you. Satan. He's referred to in every major section of the New Testament. He is supreme in the realm of evil spirits, obviously. He's always opposed to God and man's best interest. Opposed to God, that's obvious. He's opposed to your best interest in any case. He's the source of affliction from 2 Corinthians 12. He takes away the good seed from the hearts of men in Mark 4 and Matthew 13. He sows evil seed in the world in Matthew 13. The tares and the wheat and all of that. He's a God of this world. That's a title that He has. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving, according to 2 Corinthians 4. He tempted the Lord Himself. Why would He overlook you? And He tempted the Lord and His followers. Are you a follower of Jesus? Then you're on Satan's list. Now the good news is he's not ubiquitous. He can't be everywhere at one time, but he does have a lot of lieutenants. He hindered Paul's missionary work. That's the illusion Paul makes here. The tempter hindered. Maybe he hindered you. See, that's what one of the things he does. He hinders your why? Because he wants to keep the productivity down. Because every time someone trusts Christ, there's a counter that counts it up. And there's a point at which the counter is full, and the father will say to the son, go get him. He doesn't know when that is. But he's anxious for that, slow that counter down. He seeks to gain advantage over the faithful, we learn from 2 Corinthians 2. He is a deceptive angel of light. He's not ugly. He's always depicted in literature and artwork and so forth, some you know, ugly guy. No, if he was ugly, you'd be repulsed by him. No, he's beautiful. He at one time was the most beautiful thing created. And uh, he, had a, he, had a type, he was the angel of light, can you imagine? He's attractive. That makes him dangerous. Hey guys, you're not tempted by ugly girls, are you? It's the beautiful ones that are dangerous ones, in the sense I'm speaking, right? He's like a roaring lion, Peter tells us. He's chief among the enemies to be subjugated at the end. He's going to get his. And he's defeated already, according to Colossians 2. For many of us, that sounds awfully academic. Some people say we're in the millennium already. Well, if that's the case, his chain is too long, right? No, he's around. He cannot touch any child of God without permission. One of the instructive insights from the book of Job, and also Luke 22 and other passages. Anything that happens to you is father-filtered. It may be grim, it may be unpleasant, it may be a lot of things, but you can take refuge in that it is by the Father's permission. That should give you comfort. Christians may defeat the, his purposes here and now. The possibility of victory is there. That's what Ephesians 6 is all about. You need to know about the armor of God. There's seven elements. All seven are critical. Put on the whole armor, not just your favorite pieces. There's seven of them. Find out what they are. Urgent, urgent study if you haven't done it before. Ephesians 6, from verse 10 to the end. Grab it. Appropriate it. See, you're in a warfare, whether you know it or not. It's the art of war. And it's more dangerous by carefully concealed surprises than by ostentatious displays of force. Yes, there'll be occasions when Satan will show ostentatious displays of force. But those aren't the dangerous ones. It's these little hidden surprises that are the deadly ones. He has persuaded, Satan has persuaded a frivolous and shallow generation 
that he no longer exists. But just a phantom of the past, a popular joke. Most non-believers have no grasp of the reality of Satan. He successfully, he, he creates two kinds of people. Those that don't believe he exists, they think he's just a figment of literature and a popular joke. Or the other extreme, people who are terrified of them. If you're a believer, you do not have to be terrified of him because you have the Holy Spirit. And he will try to bluff you. Now those occasions may be more rare than in this population, but who knows? There are confrontations with demons going on today. And one of their strategies is to bluff you, to terrify you. You need to know where you are in Christ. Hey, first of all, you better be in Christ. And if you are, don't let him bluff you. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Let's move on. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Very warm and friendly, isn't it? Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. In all our affliction. It's a good report from them is a comfort to him. See, Paul is in affliction too, but getting a good report of what you're doing comforted him. That should be our attitude always. You see, when we know of another brother who's being faithful, that's a comfort to us. That's something for us to cling to as we have our challenges. We're family. We're family. So for the fourth time in this chapter, Paul has mentioned their faith. Very big comfort for him. Now verses 8, 9, and 10 are Paul's challenge from all of this. His whole heart was wrapped up in the spiritual prosperity of these, his children, in the faith. He's very much wrapped up in their progress. So that's what he's dealing with here. Paul's prayer life. Study the Word and soul winning. That's, that summarized Paul. His prayer life, he studies the Word, and winning souls. That's what he was all about. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.